Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, this is episode number 154, 154. And again, if you have any questions or comments, you can leave them for us on the uh, um, comments section on Podbean, or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. And as you've noticed last couple of podcasts, I've just been staying away from politics. My, uh, my theory on that is there's plenty of other analysis. And I've already laid it out. And, and just to keep doing it over and over and over again, I'll, I'll sound like, you know, a 24-7 cable channel if I keep doing that. But I just wanted to say that, you know, there are people who see it, but can't see it. And... Uh, you know, I, I think there's serious problems, uh, very serious problems. And I'm going to make this quick. When you have an outside candidate, a person not in the political power structure, who runs for president and immediately FBI spies are put in his campaign, immediately there's media smear campaigns, you know, as we go through the campaign process. As soon as he becomes president, there's this hoax, this Russia hoax. Then there's the, the hoax of the Ukrainian phone call. Um, there's all these attempts at creating everything from Trump University to sexually assaulting a woman on an airplane, which he was never on. Um, you go through all of that, the fake impeachment, all of that leads up to a stolen election. And the reason we know it was stolen is because everybody says it wasn't. And they're just saying, move on, you know, accept, you know, just accept it. They didn't accept it in 2016. They were running around saying that uh, Trump was an illegitimate president, that uh, that basically Hillary Clinton had won the election. Uh, Stacey Abrams, that, that fool, that, that Sasquatch from Georgia, she swears she won an election. So uh, claiming you won an election that you didn't win is, is hardly a crime. And what do you think motivated thousands of people to go to the Capitol on January 6th? It wasn't that they were rabble-rousers. It was they were legitimately protesting what they saw as a grave injustice and a real affront to the whole political process. And what they saw and know, and it's true, is controlled by a deep state that involves the power structures of both parties. We also know that there were FBI actors that were agitating and creating trouble in that crowd. No one's investigated that. No one's done any of that. So, you know, you can see it, but you can't see it. And, and you see it now. Any politician with a D after their name is essentially a Pelosi, Schumer, Biden, and those people, they're, they're not cogent enough to actually be running things. There's somebody behind the curtain who's really running things. And the, the D's, the Democratic D's who are on ballots are nothing more than their stooges. They're nothing more than their stooges. And, you know, face it, it's not Harris. Harris is as bad as Biden. She can't put together cogent sentences and and she's a fool. She's a complete fool. 
So she's not running things. So who is? It's certainly not Biden stuffing an ice cream cone in his face and, you know, he can't make any sense out of anything. Someone else or a cabal of others, which is what I suspect, are running things. And uh, that is very scary because you can never hold them accountable because they're not. that's not the face. So it's very, very dangerous. I don't know how these midterms are going to pan out, how this is all going to work. But I know one thing, unless we do a major course correction, things are just going to get worse and worse. And they're already pretty bad now. There's a food pantry in the little town I live in. And on the day that they're open like two days a week. And when they're open, there's a line of cars like you wouldn't believe waiting to get in there so people can get some food because they can't afford the food that's in the stores. Because they can talk about 8 or 9% inflation. And if you're Joe Biden, that doesn't matter. <laughs> that's, you know, that's not even ice cream money to him. Or your Harris or your rest or the rest of them. But there are families out there who inflation is absolutely killing. And, and I can tell you this. And when they say 8 or 9%, they are liars. And they are bullshitting us. Because when gas goes from two and a quarter a gallon to almost four dollars a gallon, that's more than eight or nine percent. Okay? Think about how much gasoline you buy. Everybody buys a lot of gasoline because everybody goes, because even in places where there's public transportation, you take your life in your own hands now when you uh, when you use it. Food and I've said just just I've noticed food has just skyrocketed and um, I shop two places one are the regular stores like everybody else and then I make a couple trips a month to the military commissary where I have commissary privileges and that used to be like 30 35 percent lower you could save a ton of money in there now its prices are competitive with the supermarkets kind of the same so it's scary food prices have skyrocketed and it's more than this bogus 11 or 8 to 10 percent whatever whatever fake figure they're lying to you about um the, the figure is much higher figures probably closer to 30 or 40 percent maybe even 50% on stuff that you have to buy. Gasoline is certainly 50% higher. So anyway, I uh, just wanted to cover that uh, there's the analysis is out there and uh, you can see it. Speaking of people who aren't very smart, and in fact, in fact, it, to show how our, our society just rewards complete simpletons, um, there's an NFL quarterback named Tom Brady. And Tom Brady is the, the, quote, greatest of all time. You know, like that really matters. You know, um, I realize there are a lot of people who watch the NFL. So, you know, being the greatest of all time is a big deal in all that world. To me, it's like being the greatest at tiddlywinks. I mean, it just doesn't matter. Um, but anyway, this guy's at the edge of his career. He's been playing for 20-some years. He's like 45 or 46 years old, whatever it is. Um, he retired at the end of last year, then unretired, and that's 
that that's causing his marriage to to break up. He's married to a Brazilian supermodel who actually has made more money than he has. But anyway, so his marriage is falling apart. The team he's on is is garbage. They're like 50%. You know, they're not going to the Super Bowl. They're not going to win anything. And so what is he really doing? Well, he's putting up garbage statistics. So, you know, when a guy has to surpass him, he's, he's you know, it's going to take a bigger effort because this guy will have this one last year of statistics. So, I, you know, I, it's hard to take a person like that seriously. But what he said that is so egregious is that this imbecile, this Tom Brady, uh, actually had the gall to compare a season in the NFL with a military deployment, uh, presumably to a war zone. <laughs> I mean, because that's really the context we use the word deployment in. Um, deployment is, does not have a real strict definition. Um, you can have a unit deploy to Korea where there's currently not a war going on, or it could deploy to, you know, um, one of the training centers in Southern California um, and to train. But but he really meant it as a military deployment, and and I won't even go into how stupid that is. All I can say is Tom Brady really is a guy who's had his butt kissed since he was a nasty little teenager. I'm sure he's always been the gifted star athlete and, and everybody's been swooning over him. Um, he makes it to the NFL and he does achieve and that's there's nothing wrong with that. But understand the world that goes along with that is everybody's catering to his desire. He's surrounded by yes men. He gets paid millions of dollars a year. And, uh, you know, he, he, can, he can delude himself into thinking what he actually does is important. And I think the problem he's facing now is that as a man, he realizes that he's going to be off the pedestal now. Uh, he'll be just another ex-quarterback, just another one of these guys who's all washed up and, you know, maybe get a job broadcasting or something um, and, and still pretending like this nonsense that he's a part of is, is important. Um, it makes you wonder how stupid he would be to say something like that because a guy like that makes a lot of endorsements and all that. You would think that he would have people kind of advising him, especially in this day and age of, if you say the wrong thing, you get in trouble. Um, you would think he would have some advice. Some people would advise him, and you know he would not say and do stupid things. But evidently, that is not the case. So, you know, the NFL makes a lot of mistakes, and I mean they're just now getting over this whole kneeling business. You know, I mean that, that's when I was basically finished with them. I could care less about it. Um, you don't kneel at the national anthem, insult the flag. You know, millionaires doing this. People getting, you know, fantastic amounts of money. They, yeah, after the game, they go out and drive their Bentleys and Rolls Royces and Ferraris home. You know, forget them. Um, and in fact, uh, Tom Brady is really a dirtbag because what he does in no way compares favorably to even an 18, 19-year-old kid who goes on a 
combat deployment, that kid is much more courageous and much better human being and is a person actually giving back to their country um, as opposed to a pampered little jerk like Tom Brady. So there you go. Um, you know, Tom Brady is the same kind of guy. He, he's like the, the goofy royal family. And, and have you noticed, since the poor old queen died, the royal family has just been in the news. I mean, why people are interested in them, I don't know. In an era where everybody's kind of looking down their nose at privilege, the British royal family is the most privileged people on the planet. I mean, they're born into this fantastic amount of wealth. And why people are fascinated with them, I don't know. But they make the same kind of stupid, idiotic mistakes. Uh, and and they, get, they get excoriated for it, and they can't understand why. Um, you know, one of the mistakes was they wouldn't let Prince Harry, who I, I think is abominable. I think he's just, a, he's just an ugly little creature. But they wouldn't let him wear his military uniform for most of the, you know, the the 14 day funeral of the queen i think he could wear it once now he's a guy to stick up for him he served in afghanistan so if anybody in the royal family deserves to wear a uniform it's him his brother who also served not in a war zone but served and then the uh, the uncle uh the disgraced prince andrew who was in the falklands you know those guys should wear their military uniform they earned it but instead we see Princess Anne, and there's another prince, I think his name is Edward, who neither of them have ever served in the military, but they are, as a matter of fact, I think Prince Edward was the one who was kicked out of the Royal Marine Commandos. I, I, I'm sure that was pretty rough. I mean, that's not something that you come from this super luxurious, privileged background, and, uh, you know... Those guys, that's that's rough, and that's the real deal. It's rough, and and there was no way that guy was going to probably make it there, and a lot of people would not. But they've never served yet. They're wearing military uniforms because they're like honorary colonel of the regiment of some some you know part of the army or navy, and uh, it's it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Nobody kind of looked and said, maybe we just let. Let Prince Andrew and let Prince Harry wear their uniforms because it's a funeral, and who really cares? And the answer is nobody really cares. But when they don't do that, it becomes this big uproar. So again, uh, people just don't have any kind of common sense or any sense of the optics around them when they make these these capricious and, and ridiculous decisions. And they make themselves, in the case of the royal family and in the case of Tom Brady, look like what they are pampered, entitled, and overprivileged. So that's just what I wanted to say about those those knuckleheads. Um, yeah, it's really ridiculous. Now to get to some serious business. Uh, in my area, there have been three gun store break-ins. Three gun store break-ins. And, and there's some parts of this that are really disturbing. Gun stores usually don't get broken into, you know, and, and here's the reason why, because everything in there is inventoried, it's listed with the government. So, you know, if some guy runs in there, smashes a, a, a display case with a brick, 
grabs two revolvers or, or two pistols and runs out the door, um, th those serial numbers are going to be traced. And those things will be hot forever. Kind of what we were talking about with the government M16s, the last podcast, is kind of the same thing true. Those things are going to be down, and, and whoever has them is in possession of stolen property, and they're going to say, well, where did you get it from? And they, they will trace it back. So these things never cool off, is what I'm saying. So why would you steal them? And I, my mind goes to, well, they're going to dispose of them someplace where they won't be traced, which could be overseas. Uh, it could be with cartel gunmen who are, who are now over our border since basically Biden has been dropping welcome mats on the border. They could be those people who don't care anyway because they know they're illegal. They know they're going to get nabbed as cartel murdering cartel gunmen bunch of murderers so they don't really care if they have a, uh, a stolen firearm so that that could be it or it could be and this is the one that I think is worst the worst is Antifa and or some organization like it could be just say we're just gonna arm ourselves and we're gonna steal and we're gonna take these guns and we're just gonna hide them and then when the riot and all the, the civil disobedience starts, hey, you know, we won't be uh, undergunned like we were against this Rittenhouse guy. Could be that. Could be that. There's no way to know until these guys are caught. So I'm not really sure what the, uh, what the story is going to be. But just be advised, um, now is a good time to up your security, especially if you own firearms because evidently there are people out there looking for them and uh, that's going to be a big a big deal a very big deal well I'm going to since I've covered that there's not really any other news that uh, um, is out there other than a couple of observations uh, the one observation is <laughs> have you have you heard the thud yet of the 30 Super Carry as basically the whole thing comes crashing down? 30 Super Carry is done. Um, they're not producing a lot of guns for it. Uh, there's very little ammo for it. Um, you know, it was another, another ill-conceived idea. And I really wonder why during a time of shortage would you want to introduce something new that's going to be even more susceptible to shortage so if you like 30 super carry i'd probably buy one <laughs> sooner rather than later i'd also stock up on the ammo and maybe maybe you can uh, maybe you know it it'll be produced on some some level if we get ever get back into a uh, a situation of plenty where uh, they can afford to crank it out they will but there are a lot of calibers right now that are hard to find because they're the you know kind of the the boutique calibers or they're the smaller calibers or the obsolete calibers that don't have a high demand so uh, a lot of those are getting are very hard to get but 30 super carry might be a cool collectible you know, if you were in your 20s and uh, you want to risk it, buying one and salting it away so that you have one that's unfired or, ver or in nearly new condition 40 years from now, hey, that might be, might be something. Might be something. 
that's about the only plus side I can think of for 30 super carries. So uh, that's the that's the biggest part of that. We will go now into my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And we have a biggie to start with. This came out of uh, a multi-person conversation. 38 Smith & Wesson. When was it last used, last kind of new guns made for it, for uh, law enforcement and commercial use? I mean, we still find guns in 38 Smith & Wesson. They're not common, but they're not rare. Um, you know, a lot of the victory model guns you'll see, you know, if you, unless you kind of know what you're looking at, you're looking at 38 Smith & Wessons and not 38 specials. So, because there were a lot of those brought in in the uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s, a lot of those came in and they sold them for nothing. They were selling those things for less than 100 bucks, a lot less in some cases. But those were World War II manufacture, as were the Webleys. Uh, I have seen some 1950s revolvers, primarily for the overseas market that were made in, in uh, 38 Smith & Wesson. But the preponderant amount of guns you see are the Smith & Wesson and Iver Johnson and Harrington and Richardson, the, you know, kind of those break top revolvers. All of them were, you know, kind of those little break top revolvers, pocket guns, you know, basically what a snub nose revolver is to today's market. And that's one of the things that I think, one of the reasons the factory loads for it are so anemic is because they, they know there are a lot of those older guns out there. So, you know, there's no, there's no impetus, there's no appetite, there's no impetus and no appetite for performance ammo in 38 Smith & Wesson. Um, you know, the factory load is, I think, 146 grain bullet. I think it's at 700 feet per second, something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I it's, it's awful. I mean... I have never gotten good accuracy out of it. Out of, um, I've shot it in three different guns, and none of them shoot that particularly well. Um, they just don't. Um, you know, they were also called 32, no, 32, 38 New Colt Police was the, the Colt designation for it for a while. But I think they gave that up because I saw the Colt Police positive that was marked 38 Smith and Wesson, you know, and it was a factory marking. So they gave up on the, probably in the 1930s, probably before World War II, they gave up on the uh, 38 new Colt, Colt new police, Colt new police is what it was. Um, and those were usually like 200 grain bullet. And um, in my experience, a cast 200 grain bullet shoots better than the factory load. Still not anything you want to take to your local competition, but it uh, it does shoot better. Now, oddly enough, in the book Six Guns by Elmer Keith, he talks about 38 Smith and Wesson and basically says, "Look, it's a it's a pipsqueak. It's not really good for anything, but it is outstandingly accurate." And I always wondered about that because I've never seen a gun set up for accuracy with 38 Smith & Wesson. 
every one has been fixed sights. Usually when I think of a gun that's very, very accurate, I think it usually has some refinements to it, like adjustable sights, um, maybe a wide trigger, something like that. And a longer barrel. Uh, the longest barrel I've ever really seen on them is the five and a half Victory model. Uh, the other ones are just usually four inch barrels, which usually aren't, it's kind of a duty gun deal, not really a target gun barrel length but he says they are now I would I would opine that I don't know if he confused it with 38 special 38 special is fantastically accurate and in guns like the Smith & Wesson model 14 model 15 even going bigger to the uh, to the end frames um, it is fantastically accurate I found that even the the snub nose 38s that like the chief special the model 36 is a very very accurate gun um for what it is i mean for what it is it's got less than a two inch barrel so you know it's it's not going to be a camp perry gun but it's actually quite accurate and considering they they don't have any um any adjustable sights but if anybody out there knows of a 38 Smith & Wesson revolver that even has adjustable sights, uh, just drop me a quick email and let me know. K-B-M-A-K-E-L at AOL.com because I don't, I just can't recall ever seeing one. So therefore, I'm, I don't think they exist. <laughs> I mean, in my experience, they don't exist. So if you see one, let me know. It'd be interesting to check it out and see if it, and and by the same token, if you have any information, like, yes, you know, in 1931, it was used by so-and-so at Camp Perry, and they won the championship, or or whatever, you know, if you have some any kind of use other than that, I, I just don't see it. Um, you know, it's, it's a cartridge that was completely eclipsed by the 38 Special. Uh, 38 Special is more powerful, more accurate on and on and on so uh, it'd be very interesting to see um, if anybody out there has any knowledge beyond its duty gun use and that's about it for uh, for the 38 Smith and Wesson uh, an interesting an interesting but you know horribly obsolete cartridge now but but fun to shoot kind of fun to play with and fun to shoot and uh, the guns that are connected to it are a lot of times uh, connected to very interesting periods in history so that's it all right next question what do you know about a about the Holloway Arms Hack 7 rifle uh, the Holloway Arms Hack 7 um, was a rifle that was designed in the late 70s maybe and produced in the early 80s a very very limited amount uh, it was basically a piston driven a uh, not AR um, piston driven rifle that was like an FAL in some ways uh, it had design elements that that were kind of taken from the FAL it kind of looks like an FAL but it's not um, they were used by there was kind of that budding soldier of fortune type militia type uh, movement back then and it, it was used by at least some of that um, some of that demographic 
Um, I think probably less than a thousand of them were made, you know, and I don't know what the exact number was. I think it took M14 magazines, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, I think it took M14 magazines because uh, FAO magazines would have been pretty rare at the time. So it was a, um, but I may be wrong on that. So, but you know, it was a, it was a standard, you know, just kind of rifle. The the failing of it was, it had never been tested or adopted by any military or police service. So it was essentially a civilian semi-automatic rifle that was kind of gussied up to look military and. Uh, you know, I think people, there are still people who collect them and as an oddity and, and maybe even shoot them. But it was a dead end. It never, never went anywhere. Uh, one of the, one of its caches was, it came out when there was fierce criticism of the 5.56 cartridge, which has disappeared today, you know, completely disappeared. And in fact, the tables have been turned. People criticize 7.62 NATO now. Um... We went from a time where the the M14 and it's the civilian M1A were the considered the very best, the pinnacle of military rifles, to the point where they get you know dogged pretty hard by uh, the generate the millennials and the Generation Z and the people who think they're in that that deal. Um, yeah, those those guys are. Uh, um, have really turned the table. So it's really gone gone around completely 100% differently. So the Hack 7 was designed to capitalize on the love and the myth of the 7.62 NATO, the perceived superiority of a piston-driven system with controls like an FAL. And uh, uh, they sold a few hundred of them and it quietly slipped into history. Okay, next thing. What do you know about the CZ-52 pistol. Okay, CZ-52 um, first came to my attention when it was exceptionally rare. And if you could find one, if you could find one, it would cost you probably twelve to 1400 uh, US dollars in like 1979, 1980. That's when you know that kind of money could actually buy something you could probably buy two cold pythons for that um so it was exceptionally rare uh the people who had them were advanced collectors who were who were pretty pretty wealthy um so that's that's where it stayed until of course the fall of communism and then scads of them came into the country usually with a holster and a cleaning rod and an extra magazine and they were selling for 60 to 70 dollars so um you know now they were import marked that's about the only difference you could you could draw between the the two so uh a lot of people bought them uh, and they found you know they found some weaknesses if you dry fired a lot you can break the firing pins so there are strengthened firing pins on the market and it's not a bad idea to change them out. I've never done that because I don't dry fire mine, so I don't really care. Mine just kind of sits in a sits in a safe because it, there's really not much. There's really not much about it that's tremendously interesting. It's kind of a a large, clunky uh, 7.63 Tokarev uh, pistol. 
you know, you fire it a couple times and, you know, it is what it is. I mean, it's single stack. It's it doesn't have any real feature that, that comes out and grabs you. You know, it just just really doesn't. So, uh, you know, consequently, they don't see much use. So that's the deal on it. Uh, it is an outstandingly interesting collectible from the Cold War. I mean, that's why I have one. I mean, to me, it's it's fascinating. The Czechs are fascinating people. The Czechs, uh, at the time, it was Czechoslovakia. Um, now it's kind of the, the Czechs uh, because the, the two countries kind of split. But um, they're fascinating. They had to do certain things to because they were Warsaw Pact members but they were not afraid to use their own designs and uh, some of their designs were pretty pretty cool um, VZ-58 rifle is excellent in my opinion I think it's actually superior to the AK in a lot of respects it's it's an outstanding piece of equipment really is um, the CZ-75 pistol is outstanding. Great piece. The CZ-52 pistol, uh, not so great. The CZ-52, uh, VZ-52 and VZ-52-57 rifles were not that great. Um, they were interesting, but not that great. So I, I really kind of, uh, I, I find them fascinating, though. The, the way they kind of engineered and solved problems. Um, they're almost like the French they have some very interesting designs uh, they're a bit a little bit more mainstream some of the French designs are kinda out there a little bit but um, they're they're as original as the French are and that is uh, that is what is very intriguing about Czech weapons okay and I've covered this following question a couple times but it keeps getting asked so I will keep answering uh, why are revolvers making a comeback uh, the day of the revolver is is making a comeback. I mean, it is it is coming around kind of full circle. They were out of fashion for so long that it a whole new generation of people are rediscovering the brilliance of a revolver. Not only are they brilliantly designed, I mean, just you know, most people can't look. Even if you see the, the internals of a revolver, most people can't really figure out how it works. They know it does, but they really can't figure it out uh, because it is a complex mechanism. But it's also, at the same time, a very sturdy mechanism. And it's a mechanism that lends itself to accuracy. But it's also a mechanism that demands quality of manufacture. So therefore, most revolvers on the market are very high quality and in this day and age when you kind of compare them to some of the polymer guns um, the quality is evident and people will usually buy quality uh, they may carp about the price but you know look at look at the cold pythons um, it's been two and a half years and you can't find one um, just barely find one if you do it gets snapped up so the Colt Python, you know, bespeaks of serious quality, and people are buying them up. A lot of revolvers are getting bought up. People like the precision. They like the accuracy. There's also another couple other issues. 
Uh, especially with larger revolvers. I mean, uh, face it, you don't really get 357 Magnum performance out of anything except a 357 Magnum. And the best place to find that is in a revolver. Um, same thing with the larger cartridges um, are almost exclusively revolvers. I mean, they, as much as I'm a fan of the Desert Eagles, um, you know, they kind of go up to that 50 A&E and stop. And, you know, you can go farther in a revolver. But, you know, a revolver is intuitive to use. People who don't understand guns very well, I, I don't know if it's exposure to television or if it's just because they can see how it works. Just theoretically and conceptually, they get how it works more easy. They understand it more easily than they do a semi-automatic pistol. Um, another big reason is when it comes to concealed carry firearms, um, a 38 snub nose, especially the Smith & Wessons, can be very lightweight and can be very small. Now you have five shots, but in most cases that's enough. And they're very concealable, they're very dependable, and considering their barrel length, they're very accurate. The quality stands out. Um, if you have a smaller semi-automatic pistol, uh, there's 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 things that can go wrong, and um, you know how many times this has happened to me a couple of times, not often, but you take a gun to the range, a semi-automatic pistol, and uh, it doesn't work the way you think it's going to, you know, and you say, man, if I was carrying this, this would be a problem, uh, because you have to be a little more careful in your ammo selection, make sure that it functions. You've got to make sure that you have good magazines. You've got to make sure that it's lubricated and, and everything is, is so. I mean, even in, even in Glocks, even in the, the Polymer Wonder Guns, you've got to make sure it's so. Uh, some people either don't have that knowledge or have forgotten that knowledge or, you know, they're, they're in the position where they pick up the gun and go. And a revolver is much better. A uh, revolver is much more tolerant of... I won't say neglect, but you don't have to pay as much attention to it. So, and, you know, there's no magazine to go bad. Now, the argument I've heard against the revolver is, well, when you have a malfunction with a revolver, it's usually, it's down for the count. And that can be true. Most revolver malfunctions, however, are a function, except for an incredibly tiny percentage of mechanical breakages which is very very tiny as a matter of fact it's probably smaller than the mechanical breakages that you'd find in a semi-automatic pistol but the the mechanical problems with a revolver are usually linked to ammunition and factory ammunition is very very good uh, where you can get in tr trouble is with hand loads uh, you can get the high primer, which is the primer that's not fully seated, which rubs against a recoil shield and can tie up the revolver. Another thing that can happen is if you don't have enough crimp on your bullets, they can creep forward and actually stick out the front of the cylinder. And then when you try to cycle the revolver, they, it, the cylinder won't move because these, are, these bullets are preventing it from, from moving. So you can have that kind of a problem. Yes, that will take the revolver usually out of the out of the fight, and it and it takes a few minutes to 
to figure that out and, and correct that situation. Um, so yes, a revolver can do that. Now, there are a lot of gun courses where you go to a shooting school or a, a course um, for combat pistol and you're expected to shoot in five days a thousand rounds um, and some of these instructors will say well your most of your revolvers will not especially small ones will not tolerate this and you will you will hate yourself because of the recoil and and I would say that, that there's there could be very much truth to that um, I would say that the problem with that is is that you don't buy a snub nose five shot revolver to go shoot a thousand rounds out of it. Um, you you get it as a carry gun that you're not going to shoot very often, except when you're practicing, and you're not going to shoot a thousand rounds. You're going to shoot, you know, whatever it is you need to shoot, because it's more important to shoot routinely than it is to shoot an incredibly high round count during one of these these deals. Um, there. Their vested interest is that everyone has a very dependable auto pistol like a Glock, which won't malfunction. So therefore, you know, the class kind of runs smoothly and they're not, you know, clearing jams and fixing pistols all the time. Um, so that's that's one of the reasons that they, they push those types of, of pistols. But a revolver is an excellent gun to use for a lot of things. If you're an outdoorsman, a revolver is really a great piece of equipment. It really is. And, um, you know, single action revolvers that have interchangeable cylinders are very convenient. Um, there's just a whole lot of goodness with revolvers. One of the things I like the best, what do I like the best when it comes to just listing advantages? And I would say that when I have a revolver, I don't have to buy spare magazines, which are not cheap anymore. Um, you know, the cheapest magazines for a 1911 that are quality are at least 20 bucks, sometimes 25, and, and go up from there. Some of the more exotic guns are, uh, you know, you can you can spend 40 or 50 dollars for a magazine. You know. Buy, buy five of them and see what that costs you. That's that's a lot of money. A revolver is, it is what it is. And speed loaders are cheap. And yes, it's not as fast. But, you know, for most of us, it's a very, very good choice. And that's why the revolver is coming back. It's quality, durability, dependability, simplistic operation, versatility, and in some cases, power. You, it, it offers you power that you just can't get anywhere else. Okay, here's a related question. Why are classic auto pistols like the Browning High Power and M1911A1 making a comeback? This came out of a conversation about, you know, everybody's Springfield Armory has a Browning High Power they're selling. Uh, the, there's EAA or, or whoever it is, Gearson or whatever. They're selling a Browning High Power uh, made in Turkey. Uh, FN is introducing, I think, a classic high power, and then they've got one that they've uh, they've updated, which probably won't be very popular, but we'll see. Um, those are all very popular guns, and they're selling like crazy. Uh, another thing is, a lot of the, I don't want to say low end, it's it's the lower cost, the basic 1911A1s are selling too. The the ones made in Turkey, which are 
pretty much a carbon copy of the 1911 A1. They sell like crazy. Um, yeah, they're hard to find in stock. Uh, and there's a couple other companies, Rock Island being one, Auto Ordnance being another. <coughs> they have um, they have reintroduced or they have introduced um, 1911 A1, you know, the basic gun, not the fancy target guns or guns with you know fancy sights or anything. They, they basically the military configuration style guns, and they're selling like crazy. I, I attribute it to two two reasons. One which is the least important is nostalgia people have a nostalgia um, and and you know you don't really buy a collector quality USGI 1911 A1 and then go out and shoot it and carry it around in a holster and do all that kind of stuff you you buy one of these other guns which performs like it looks just like it but is is worth much less and and won't degrade its collector value by doing that so um nostalgia is one reason another reason is the same reason for the same reason for revolvers is there's a quality of all steel guns there is a quality of manufacture there that people like and i'm not saying that the polymer guns are low quality but there is a quality that uh, you know they used to do this in advertising there's a quality you can feel and things that feel more expensive you can usually charge more money for but in this case they just feel more expensive they look and they feel like they're a value and so therefore people will buy people again will buy value they will buy quality um, you know, I don't know how long the polymer frame guns last. They seem to last okay, but I've seen some ratty-looking Glocks. I mean, I've seen some ratty-looking ones that, you know, where the the uh, the polymer frame has been scraped and scratched and and everything. And uh, you could say the same thing about steel frame guns, but steel frame guns could be refinished, and steel frame guns just seem like they last longer. So people will, you know, you can. I've, I shoot uh, I shoot guns that are you know sometimes a hundred years old and and they're there and ain't none of them made out of polymer that's for sure so they see quality and they're willing to pay for it and uh, the classic designs are very very good you know it's very hard to improve upon for a nine millimeter pistol it's pretty hard to improve upon the Browning high power um, and they but they have made a couple of improvements uh, they've improved the sights which is a good thing and they've also uh, upped, I think you can get 15 round magazines for it now. So while that doesn't put it at the top end of, you know, there are some guns that hold 18 or 19, uh, you, you, you're definitely up into, the, up into the higher round count, which, you know, most people kind of objected to the uh, 13 round magazines that most people loaded with 12 because uh, conventional wisdom said to do that based on nothing based on no hard evidence but conventional wisdom said to do that so people were carrying 12 shot nine millimeters when in fact there are 19 and 20 shot um nine millimeters out there but now that you're up to 15 it's it's okay and it's a, a lot more competitive okay next question and what auto pistol calibers what auto pistol calibers 
our best forecast bullets. Um, auto pistol. Um, I'm going to say anything lower velocity. Um, and I'm trying to think. I, I think, like, if I had a 357 SIG, I've never loaded for it. If I had one, I would be very. Um, I'd be very careful because I'd be afraid of letting. The 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 enemy of cast bullets is velocity because that helps induce letting. There there are other things that can cause letting also, but um, it's usually velocity and it's usually hotter loads that are kind of melting the base of the bullet while it uh, while it, you know, exits the barrel, goes down the barrel and pops out. So, and you want to avoid letting it really almost at all cost. And you do that by using loads that will function the gun. They will function the gun, but they're not the top end loads. So the ones that just, if you can just get one that just barely functions the gun, you're, you're, in, you're, in a, you're right in the winner circle. It's gold. Uh, my viewpoint is that it doesn't really matter which lube you use. Uh, I've used all three. Uh, I've used the tradition Lyman style sizer. And that just takes forever, you know, to do a hundred bullets out of that is just, it takes a long time and it's, it's fiddly and, you know, those things are kind of going the way of the dodo. People are doing the other two things, which are using liquid allox, which has been around since probably the forties, which is just kind of a beeswaxy tar, kind of nasty, nasty brownish liquid that dries on the bullet. And I use that. Or I or I powder coat, which is a little more labor intensive, but not nearly as bad as the uh, Lyman style uh, sizer. So um, you know, and by using both those, keeping your loads moderate so that they function the gun, but you're not looking for peak end performance. Uh, most auto pistols are very happy with um, with cast bullets. I have not tried 10 millimeter. I assume 10 millimeter may be may do some letting um never did 50 a and e because can't there are guys who run powder coated bullets in a desert eagle but that's not a great idea so um i don't i just shoot jacketed in that and that's that's how that works uh same thing with the 44 magnum desert eagle you just don't use a uh, lead bullet in that so but for everything else um you can you can uh, pretty much do that. Top end loads in a 44 Magnum revolver, nah, I'd stay away from. Um, those are about the big velocity. Yeah, Tokarev. I don't really know anybody who reloads a lot for that, but yeah, I would stay away from cast bullets there. I'd stay away from them. If I had to, I would powder coat. I did powder coat some broom handle Mauser bullets and got excellent success with that, but that works at a lower pressure. So it's, uh, you know, and it functioned the gun. So, you know, anything like that, um, you can, you can get it to work. And the other ones, 38 special target loads and all that, you can, you know, just the Allox is fine and it's cheap too. You know, you buy it, it's Lee, it's, it's like $5 a bottle and, very easy to apply. You just got to wait for it to dry. So um, I don't know that any auto pistols are 
calibers are the best I, you know you can always just hey 38 special is the best best for everything <laughs> i i know guys you know that used to be it used to be the caliber that guys uh, loaded um that that was the pistol caliber for for decades um probably 90 percent of the guns you would see online would either be a 38 special that would be the vast majority and then you'd see 45 and you rarely saw nine millimeter or anything else so um you know those were those were great guns and they were they were very practical especially when you're getting you know wheel weights and uh making your own bullets okay here's our last question i want a precision rifle to use in a defensive scenario what are some good choices well since they put precision in there in my mind and and i'm gonna i'm gonna take the the, the inexpensive road that i know because i've t taken it um the savage rifles are an excellent value for their price and i've talked about that so if i were buying a a precision rifle to use in a let's say there's a complete urban collapse and uh you need a precision rifle i say there's only two good choices 7.62 nato or 308 winchester or 6.5 creedmoor um you can go with 556 and 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 all the rest of it there are, there are a lot of choices that you could make but when i hear precision rifle i stay away from hunting cartridges yes seven millimeter magnum is great but in a hunting rifle um you know that's designed for something else it's not a precision rifle that you might have to use uh, for a serious purpose for that you're going to need something that looks like a dmr rifle something that's going to have the appropriate optic and it needs to be in a caliber that is you know really um, suited for that that's been optimized for accuracy because when you talk precision you're talking accuracy and the power has to be there but it's it's really has to work uh, hand in hand with the accuracy so here's the here's the deal i would choose 6.5 creedmoor simply because in 2019 when us socom was looking for a sniper round they chose 6.5 creedmoor because um, over 7.62 nato rifles they had a 50 percent increase in hits um, so that that is pretty good and and my own experience with 6.5 creedmoor has been very very positive that being said i would not feel cheated or undergunned or at any sort of disadvantage with a 7.62 nato uh, i've grown up with that caliber i know it well and i think it's absolutely outstanding and while it may not have the flat trajectory of the 6.5 creedmoor uh, it does have some other advantages it it shoots um it uses some bullets that are that are you know a bit heavier and uh you know uh, basically do a good job penetrating um concealment and and do well against cover so it's it's got its own advantages too and it's very widely available there's match ammunition available for it and you know it's it's a very good it's a very good choice it's a little maybe a little more conservative choice 
but it's a very, very good choice. So those are the two that, that I would go to. Um, you can make arguments for 556. Five, you can make arguments for anything. It depends what you mean by precision. And it depends if you really have to have a semi-automatic. I would say that um, when I think of precision, I think of bolt guns uh, because of simplicity and also because of mounting the optics. Uh, I realize the AR is very optics friendly, but you know, I, I think that uh, simpler is better, keep it simple, stupid, and a good bolt gun is a great precision weapon. It really is, always has been, and it really always will be. And uh, you know, but you could make a you could make a good case that a precision AR in in any number of calibers would also be a good choice. But I I tend to want to go back to the bolt guns, and those are two great bolt gun cartridges. So anyway, that's it for this edition of Old School Guns. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or leave them in the comments section of Podbean. And, but until the next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>